Hey, thanks for tuning into The Scoop. I hope you and your family are safe during these unprecedented times. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to take a minute to give a shout out to our sponsor. If you're building in the blockchain space, then I want you to know about a company called Blockset. I've been speaking with their team closely, and I have no doubt that they are going to enable the next wave of developers and business leaders to build amazing applications. Blockset offers accessible data from all the major chains through easy to use API. It acts as your hosted blockchain infrastructure. It ultimately enables high quality apps to be built at a fraction of the cost at a fraction of the time. Go sign up for a free account at blockset.com and start building today. Stay tuned for more information later in the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for joining me on what is another special episode of The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block. It's been a really incredible year, not only for the blockchain and crypto space, but for this very podcast. We're very excited to have new listeners, folks downloading this thing ad nauseum. So folks that are new to the space or new to the show, thanks for coming. Thanks for tuning in. We're, we're really excited to deliver really superior, insightful shows and help you sort of wade into the industry, especially if you're you're new. In the past few weeks, as we've thought about new guests and thought about things to talk about, it's hard to not harken back on my early days reporting on this industry back in the heady Hasleyon days of the 2017 rally. And, you know, it's not just me, but folks across the team think about what makes this rally different from this current 2021 rally different from 2017. And the list is innumerable, really. I mean, the ICOs are no longer with us to an extent, or at least the new ICOs. There's there's not as many hype marketing machines as there used to be. And some of the players who made tons of headlines back then are kind of operating in the background. And they're out there, they're active, people are talking about them, but but they may not necessarily be making as many headlines as they used to, but they're definitely making moves. And, you know, I've been speaking with many different people across the space about our guest today. That's Olaf Carlson Wee, founder and CEO of Polychain. And they're really interested and excited about not only what he's doing, but how he views the market differently from 2017. And obviously his history dates back far beyond that. So Olaf, with that introduction, I uh, appreciate you coming on. Of course, appreciate you sharing your insights and welcome to The Scoop. Yeah, thanks for having me, Frank. Very excited to be on the podcast. Absolutely. Um, I kind of teased it last night. So throughout, um, I I struggle with insomnia as most people do during these bull markets, but people were pouring out questions for me to ask you. And I think one of the more common questions that came up was, you know, how is Polychain maybe positioned differently than you guys were in 2017? But before we dive into that, for new listeners, let's unpack what the firm is and maybe your history, and then we can sort of explore how the firm's position has changed. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to give a bit of an overview. So I was, you know, involved in Bitcoin in 
in 2011, wrote my undergraduate thesis on cryptocurrency. That year, I joined Coinbase as the first employee. I was the head of risk there for several years um, and left in 2016 to found Polychain. The goal of Polychain always has been to be a cryptocurrency native investment firm. Um, What this means is that um, most of our team comes from the cryptocurrency world and are experts in the technology as well as, you know, full-time participants in the kind of network of people here. Um, And we've structured the firm to natively invest in digital assets and the cryptocurrency landscape. So everything from our fund structuring and operations to the way we operate our finance team, all the way up to, you know, more exotic network participation in things like staking or liquidity provisioning in DeFi protocols or things like that. Um, We've always stayed kind of crypto native and we built the whole firm that way. I remember back in the heady days of 2017, you guys were among the firms making eye-popping headlines about insane thousand percent plus returns, right? And so I think that's what a lot of people maybe in the broader market associate you guys with. But I'm curious to sort of unpack what you view Polychain as in terms of an investment firm. Is it a Bitcoin fund or something else? Uh, Well, so we're invested across the entire cryptocurrency landscape. Um, Since the beginning, it's been my thesis that there's going to be a lot of interesting applications that are genuinely useful for huge swaths of the global population that are built using cryptocurrency technologies. I think that that means a world that's a bit beyond Bitcoin. Um, You know, it's kind of embedded in the name of the firm, Polychain. Uh, We're not monochain. So we're very much interested in sort of frontier tech in the blockchain space and pushing the limits of, of what is possible here both from a sort of low-level platform perspective, so systems like Ethereum that are extensible and allow developers to embed more complex logic in their transactions, as well as the sort of applications being built on tops of those platforms. Today, you know, everyone is aware that this is primarily DeFi, these sort of automatic or automated financial instruments often managed and operated by a decentralized sort of on-chain organization or corporation, you know, people often calling these DAOs. So I think that we're really interested in all of that and like to just stay at sort of the cutting edge of everything that's happening and try as best as we can to see around the corner and invest in the needs, not necessarily of users today, but of users and developers of the future as well. Back in 2017, you guys were making eye-popping headlines for your incredible returns, right? We're talking 2000% and beyond. There was like a Cambrian explosion. I don't know how else you could describe it of crypto funds um, at that time. And I think at some point there was, you know, hundreds and hundreds, right? And we kind of saw over the course of the last three years, several of them sort of exit. There was a kind of shaking out. What gave Polychain staying power? Um, You know, honestly, a lot of what I saw was people opportunistically coming into the cryptocurrency space because they saw, you know, the prices rising, right? I feel like when I launched Polychain, 
really what I was tracking was more the technologies that were being built. Um, you know, I had a very high conviction around the Ethereum ecosystem, even though, you know, around the time that I launched Polychain, kind of second half of 2016, in fact, Ethereum, you know, was in kind of this post the DAO hack, post fork, prices were falling. But what I saw was unprecedented human behavior in the form of these ICOs at the time that were organizing humans and capital in ways that I felt was were really unprecedented. Um, and the efficiency around these automated smart contract systems to organize humans and capital, I felt was going to be a very, very big deal. Um, around that time, I was thinking a lot about this idea of automating the pen and paper corporate structure with a software system. So rather than having shareholders and capital in the form of a kind of legal entity based in a specific jurisdiction or geography, and all of the legal contracts that governed uh, those humans and that capital being you know, pen and paper legal documents um, with courts to uphold those, really cutting out that whole thing and replacing it with software. Uh, so you have the capital kind of stored on a blockchain, you have all the veritable shareholders uh, being defined with crypto tokens and governance done through on-chain signatures, uh, cryptographic signatures, rather than, you know, more traditional voting with, you know, stock certificates or something like that. So this is an area that I saw growing and I've been interested in for a really long time. Um, and that's the sort of thing that we wanted to invest in. We wanted to invest in DAOs. We also wanted to invest in platforms that would enable DAOs to be built and um, invest in some things that were improving the capabilities of what developers could build. So um, back then, Ethereum, you know, allowed developers to build lots of things, but pretty quickly, it, you know, it was on the horizon that Ethereum was going to hit some scalability limits. And, you know, Ethereum today is sort of limited to mathematical logic, right? So we see a lot of financial instruments. We don't see as many apps where the premise is based on, say, photographs or texts or video, you know, logic and business logic being embedded in smart contracts. It's primarily financial logic. And so we saw um, the emergence of DAOs and the emergence of a lot of these low-level platforms that would enable developers to sort of express new types of human behavior. And we wanted to invest in all of that. The, you know, while I thought this would create a great financial return, you know, I wasn't drawn in simply because the market was hot. And I do think that crypto goes through these kind of hot and cold market cycles. It's almost like clockwork now for me, having been in this for a long time. It just, it's really predictable. And at this point, almost sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy because I think everyone expects it. And so we often see a lot of market entrants new to crypto coming in when the market is hot and leaving when the market is cold, right? But I think it's really in the sort of crypto winters where the real stuff gets built. That's when Coinbase was built. That's when Ethereum was built. And I think that's when DeFi was built as well. So I, you know, I do think I would not be surprised if we see a bunch of new funds launching in this sort of bull market that we're in, you know, similar to the way we saw that in 2017. Embedded in not only the firm's name, but in its DNA is this investment thesis that kind of goes beyond Bitcoin and Ethereum. But here we are in 2021, where the story, the narrative driving this market seems to be solely focused on 
Bitcoin, at least when you open up the Wall Street Journal or plug into your Bloomberg terminal, it's all about investors from the Wall Street world finding value in the unique characteristics of Bitcoin as this alternative to gold or as this inflation hedge. So I guess the question is, and it's it's something that was mentioned recently in Pantera investment letter, um, the market seems to be focused mostly on Bitcoin and then to an extent Ethereum. So how does that sort of landscape change or maybe make you think differently about Polychain's strategy? Um, so it's unsurprising to me that these big institutional investors getting involved are first getting involved in Bitcoin. Uh, most people that got into cryptocurrency, no matter when they got into cryptocurrency, start with Bitcoin. Uh, it's the easiest to understand from a technical level. Uh, the story is the easiest. You know, this is effectively electronic gold, right? And everyone can sort of reason about gold and reason about the value of gold in a pretty simple way. And this is sort of the digital analog. So I think it's pretty simple in some ways. And it's the highest market cap. Um, it's been around the longest. It, it was the first, right? It's unsurprising that this is where institutional investors and really most investors getting to the start. Um, but it's only a matter of time for most that get into cryptocurrency where they start to see interesting things being built outside of the Bitcoin ecosystem. And it's not by random chance. Like these really are platforms that, you know, have real differentiated characteristics whereby certain types of applications can only be built on uh, systems, you know, that, that are designed for that type of, of software to be built on them. So, I mean... This narrative of like, isn't it all about Bitcoin? I mean, this is exactly what people told me when I launched Polychain back in 2016. At that time, Bitcoin was about 95% of the market value held in cryptocurrencies. Today, it's about, you know, between 60 and 65. Um, so we've seen this sort of like long-term drop in the value of uh, Bitcoin relative to the value held in kind of all cryptocurrencies, I think that trend is a long-term trend that will continue. So, you know, I think it's ironic to me that people say, isn't this just about Bitcoin and Ethereum? Because, you know, having had a bit of time in this area, you know, people, that's two things, right? Like, where do you think the second one came from? It came from nothing and, you know, it came out of nowhere, so to speak, and, you know, was successful, Ethereum was successful because it was so differentiated and allowed people to build new types of applications that weren't possible on Bitcoin. It wasn't just a new story or a new narrative. It was a new piece of technology. Um, and this is why Ethereum has been more successful than, you know, say projects like Litecoin, that while there were some technological changes, most of them were relatively nuanced and most of the difference between Litecoin and Bitcoin is more a story or narrative or branding kind of difference. In the case of Ethereum and in the case of many of these newer systems that are gaining traction, things did like- someone, Did someone egg you on to bring up Litecoin? Because it's something that I've struggled to sort of see the value in to a degree. <laughs> and I've uh, often, no, I've no, often tweeted about know, Litecoin is just, you know, I, I watched Litecoin launch, right? And later- you know, became pretty close with Charlie Lee, who was the original kind of inventor of Litecoin. 
And, you know, so I've just watched Litecoin for a long time. But yeah, I mean, I think that most of the difference here is in in branding. I don't think you can be like 10 to 15% better than a very scaled network and think that you can achieve sort of dominance. Yeah, and I don't think anyone's intention with Litecoin, including the people that work on it, is to, quote, dominate Bitcoin, right? I, I don't think anybody thinks Litecoin will be bigger than Bitcoin. Um, but there's a, a narrative here, which is the silver to Bitcoin's gold, right? Which has been sort of the narrative from the very, very beginning. However, that's it is a narrative, right? Ethereum is not a narrative. Ethereum is a genuine kind of new technology that does things that Bitcoin can't do. It's not to say it's better in every capacity. Uh, these things come with trade-offs. The ability to encode smart contracts makes it harder to reason about the low-level chain security because there are interactions that are hard to predict between smart contracts and the low-level blockchain. Um, Reasoning about things like minor incentives, you have to take into account all of the activity happening on smart contracts, and it makes it trickier to reason about the security of the system. So it's, it's not to say it's better in every way, but it's genuinely technologically different. And this is why DeFi is built on Ethereum and and not built on Bitcoin. So to me, you know, like I said, it's unsurprising that when people get into this area, they get into Bitcoin first, but they usually inevitably go down the rabbit hole and they realize that there's a lot more going on here and that a lot of things are being built that Bitcoin simply can't support. And that in my view, most of the things that really reach kind of mass adoption as far as a useful app for regular people, Bitcoin is sort of a useful investment for regular people, but it's not really an application or a service in the way that many of these DeFi applications are, and I think will eventually reach a mass audience. When we look at the market on the whole relative to 2017, it's clear that Bitcoin might be driving things a bit more than maybe the ICO Ethereum-based projects were driving things back in. 2017 raises an interesting question, which is, you know, clearly as you laid out, there's still value there. There's still a narrative around the things that Ethereum can do, the types of applications that can be built upon that. I mean, we can look at stablecoins as maybe one of the, you know, most glaring examples. And you guys are invested in a company that's that's building in that that corner of the market. But how does then these other corners of the industry kind of have their narrative come to the top? Like how does Ethereum present itself in the way that Bitcoin has digital gold, et cetera, in a way that can captivate, capture a more institutional audience? Yeah, I mean, this feels like, frankly, conversations I had in 2016, right? When I was launching Polychain. At this point... To me, actually, DeFi is the fastest growth area in crypto. It's the most exciting area in crypto, um, undeniably. And I do think it's actually driving, you know, a lot of attention in the cryptocurrency landscape, just in the way that Ethereum and ICOs, I think, drove a lot of the attention in 2017. You know, we now have about 2% of the value held across every cryptocurrency in an Ethereum smart contract. I think this number 2% will pretty quickly go to about 20%. 
you know, because at the end of the day, there's value held in these assets and DeFi systems basically allow you to generate some sort of yield. So it's effectively like a, in the base case, a sort of savings account for your average speculator in the cryptocurrency landscape. And so I do think that more and more and more assets will basically be sucked up by these smart contract systems. Yeah. So I, I really do think that this area is growing really fast. I mean, I've watched it grow from nothing to 2% and 2% doesn't feel like a big number, but it's the rate of change that matters. And the volumes are incredibly impressive. I mean, billion dollar days are becoming the norm for Uniswap. If we continue on this thread of kind of juxtaposing the present with 2017, there's an interesting question that is, what was the problem with DEXs then? Because we saw so many announcements from AirSwap to Bancor. And, you know, one of the words I used to use in my reporting was paltry to describe the volumes of many of these venues. And today we we have DEXs from SushiSwap to Uniswap that are giving centralized venues a run for their money. So what changed in your view, you think? Yeah, so it's a whole bunch of things that added up. So one, you needed distribution. And this is primarily in the form of wallets like, say, MetaMask. If you remember the er early Ethereum days, people weren't using MetaMask as much, and they were mostly using um, kind of desktop Ethereum browsers that sort of doubled as full nodes. And it was a clunkier user experience, for sure. Um, there was also liquidity. Um, a lot of exchanges didn't offer um, Ethereum, stable coins, and other types of assets. Today, these exchanges do offer lots of different assets. And also, DeFi um, depends on there being lots of different Ethereum-compatible assets that are interesting to trade and use. Uh, 2017, I don't think there were a ton, frankly. And today, there's two orders of magnitude, I would say, more Ethereum-compatible assets that are pretty interesting and aren't just these sort of speculative assets in the way that Bitcoin is, but actually represent some sort of cash flow. Um, they represent some sort of right to cash flows um, in the way that a lot of these DAO assets do things like compounds token or uniswaps token or sushi's token all, all do and so in addition to that there's real tech breakthroughs so uh, uniswap created this automated market maker model and that just substantially increased the liquidity that was available um, to trade against and it's one of the big reasons why volume has been higher so there's a confluence of of factors here. There's a lot of different things that went into the growing volumes in, in DeFi exchanges and lending contracts is another one, right? The ability to have a robust lending environment drives volumes to DEXs for various reasons that allow short selling and things like that, which is basically a two-part trade, right? You need to borrow and then you need to sell. So I think the whole thing sort of feeds on itself as in the, the more success that one DeFi application has and the more volume it has and the more liquidity it has, it actually drives the capacity to create even more DeFi applications. So you see these second order things like Yearn Finance, for example, which really depends on there being substantial DeFi infrastructure sort of built underneath it because it sort of acts like an on-chain you know, yield generating hedge fund or something like that. And mm. that depends on substantive liquidity in DEX protocols, in, in lending systems and all things like that. There's network effects there. 
And it takes a while for the, the flywheel to get going, but we are firmly in uh, the growth phase uh, now that the flywheel is going. Bitcoin may be driving the institutional narrative, but if we're talking about what's driving returns, or at least what drove returns for much of 2020, at least for maybe some of the more wonky in the weeds crypto folks out there, it was definitely this summer of DeFi. And protocols ranging from some of the ones you mentioned, like Yearn to SushiSwap and beyond, really introduced to the marketplace innovative ways to not only incentivize liquidity, but also sort of meme as well. <laughs> I mean, there, there's so many areas in which we saw varying degrees of innovation. Yeah, I think a big difference here is that the, the summer of ICOs was a summer. Um, yeah. The summer of DeFi was just the beginning of a multi-year compounding growth. Which precisely leads to my, my next question, which is, where do we go from here? Is it the growth of the derivatives market on top of DeFi? Is it synthetic sort of assets that trade in the DeFi world? What are you most excited about? Um, the financial engineering in DeFi, I think at this point is inarguably moving faster than, you know, the, the financial engineering anywhere else in the world. The capital coordination is faster than anywhere else in the world. You know, a lot of these DeFi protocols are bigger than IPOs uh, regularly. And, you know, despite that, go relatively unnoticed and are hard to interact with, like the user experience kind of user interface barriers here are very high. And despite that, we see significant traction in terms of volumes. So that to me shows pent up demand. And if we can solve a lot of the user interface problems, abstract away complexities like key management, we can actually bring in many, many more users who will find these services useful. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think that, you know, the institutional narrative will always start with Bitcoin. Um, it's totally unsurprising to me. But once you have $100 million of Bitcoin, you might start to think how I could get yield on this Bitcoin, for example. And a lot of the times the answer there especially in the longer term, is going to be through on-chain financial contracts. If you're a listener of The Scoop or follow The Block, then you know I am super excited about the future of crypto adoption, especially on the enterprise side. Our sponsor, Blockset, is not only helping to push development at the grassroots level with their multi-chain API, but also at the institutional level. Blockset is built by BRD, the first crypto wallet in the App Store from 2014 and one of the largest in the space today. They've taken the architecture and the knowledge they've gained over the past six years to create Blockset, a robust, reliable and strategic B2B offering for developers and enterprises. Blockset is enabling banks and other major financial institutions to interface and build with crypto assets at light speed. See just how simple it is by visiting blockset.com and sign up for a free account today. There's been several reports that the firm has been looking to raise additional capital. Whether you guys are raising additional capital, have raised additional capital through a new fund vehicle, what would be driving the interest? What are these LPs or would-be LPs? What are they asking you about? What are they what are they most excited about? So because we invest at sort of the cutting edge of crypto technology, you know, there's a lot of focus in our conversations about, you know, real 
technology limits. It's it's not just narratives and and memes and you know trying to time the bottom and time the top. We're not really interested in any of that kind of stuff. We're we're really interested in what is going to enable new unprecedented behavior that was impossible before this technology was was created. And that's what we that's what we invest in. It's what we've always invested in. And it's what's driven our returns uh, from the beginning. So that's what a lot of these conversations are like. I mean, I do think that the average investor that's interested in this area has undoubtedly become more institutional and larger pools of capital than it was back in 2016 and 17. So it's, it's the whole space is maturing. A lot of basic infrastructure, really basic infrastructure did not exist back then. Um, things as simple as custody. You know, in, with Polychain, there were no custodial solutions that were on the market for all of 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, really, these systems like Anchorage and Coinbase custody that are oriented towards institutional investors didn't even launch until 2018. So th- these, let alone like, how do I acquire the assets? How do I think about tax? All those sorts of things. The really basic questions like, where do I keep it? Um, were unsolved. And so now that there is more, you know, real institutional infrastructure, of course, that just opens the door for, for more capital that previously really couldn't get into this in, in an easier, safe way. This is obviously a wide ranging conversation, which I think will be beneficial to our entire audience. But to sort of give a win for some of the really deep DeFi folks listening, I'd be curious to get your take on, on what you think about the trend of farming distribution launches. This is kind of a new hot topic in the DeFi world, you know, where projects distribute their tokens by allowing users to deposit assets in return for tokens um, versus a public sale or private sale. Um, What's your sort of impression of this? Do you support it on, on like a high level? um, I'm not sure what you mean by support it. I think at a high level, I think the whole... The, the scheme is brilliant. It is very similar to the growth schemes that traditional startups have used to bootstrap two-sided marketplaces. It's where you subsidize user acquisition because you expect the long-term value of that user to pay back the cost of that user acquisition. You know, PayPal did this working at Coinbase. While I was there, we, we created these referral programs. Uber did this. You know, a lot of different businesses that are building two-sided marketplace do these sort of incentive schemes. The great thing about this sort of network mining, as I like to call it, is that you can actually sort of embed the distribution of the ownership of the underlying product or service in the bootstrapping of the, that product or service. So you actually distribute ownership to the network of users in exchange for building the network. In all of these marketplaces, whether it be lending or trading or anything like that, you, you really get better a, a better product for the incremental user based on how many users had came before them. So you want to incentivize those early users because the more liquidity there is, the easier it is to trade, right? So big, liquidity tends to beget liquidity. And you do need to distribute this asset somehow if you want to build a DAO that manages the underlying contract system as well as generates cash flows from that system. There needs to be some sort of distribution logic. And what better way to distribute the asset that represents an ownership in the product than by giving it away to the users of the product? Uh, so 
I, I think the whole area is, is extremely interesting. I want to see more and more experimentations, uh, experimentation around the distribution of these um, assets and different ways to bootstrap platforms by using the distribution of these assets. I think notably to date, this has been bootstrapping liquidity in, in a financial context. In the future, I think that this will increasingly be uh, bootstrapping other types of network effects. So social media platforms are an easy example to understand. Uh, the more users there are on Twitter, the better the services for each incre incremental Twitter user, right? Twitter is not a useful service if you're the only person on it. It's a network effects business. It's not a services business. And so incentivizing user signup of a service like Twitter with a, you know, something like a Twitter coin, right, that represents an ownership stake in that platform, to me, is where we are headed long term. This won't just be liquidity. It will actually be network effects on many different types of applications outside of financial services. I kind of jumped the gun a little bit with that last question because my mind's kind of moving so fast um, because there's just so much we could talk about. So so folks who are maybe more casual listeners, just bear with me for one second. We're going to dive a little bit deeper into DeFi. When I meant do you support it, I was thinking about this sort of Wi-Fi proposal where where the developers want to add to that inflation level beyond the 30,000 tokens, this ongoing debate now. And I want to get your take on whether you support that sort of move. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot of details and minutia in those sorts of programs, just like there's details and minutia in, you know, the Coinbase referral program. Uh, sure. What should be the bar to join? You know, how much money should we give them, etc.? But in general, I am absolutely supportive of um, investing in growth and long-term success. Uh, what that means to me is sometimes you have to subsidize growth um, and it will lead to actually long-term a more successful product or service. So in the specific case of, you know, Yearn, I'm supportive of creating more Wi-Fi tokens in order to continue to grow the product. Um, I do think incentivizing the core developers who are working on these things is critical um, and something that has not always been done correctly, in my view, uh, for a lot of the base chain systems, where it sort of has to be subsidized outside of the protocol. Here, you can sort of subsidize it inside the protocol, which I think makes a lot of sense. Okay, I want to ask one more DeFi question, then we can sort of squeeze in a few other topics before we close this great conversation out. Um, we, we kind of hinted at it. You know, I have a sense of what you're excited about, and I know you're really excited about DeFi. We are at the block as well. If sort of 2020 was about, if it was the year of AMMs, for instance, what maybe will be 2021? Uh, so I, I think that we are going to see many scalability solutions, both mature as well as come online. Uh, this means layer two uh, systems and Ethereum, of which there are many different approaches being developed, as well as alternative layer one chains that are maturing. And between both of those, scalability is not like a nice to have thing. It actually leads to new applications that weren't possible before that more scalable technology was developed. So um, what I'm most excited about is new types of DAOs um, that is sort of new types of organizations for humans and capital that are sponsoring products and services 
that are uniquely enabled by more scalable technologies. So this, like I said, you know, today in DeFi, it's, it's, you know, it's DeFi, right? It's financial services. And DeFi to me, it's kind of a rebranding of an older word that we used to say, which was dApps um, or decentralized applications. We've kind of narrowed the focus on financial applications because that's what Ethereum is capable of today. Um, but with the maturation of systems that I think have alternative characteristics to Ethereum and are sometimes more advanced than, you know, frankly, what Ethereum can do today, some of the ones that we've invested in and have tracked closely that are, have grown recently is, for example, Polkadot. I think that there's going to be a lot of really exciting things built um, on those more scalable technologies that are hard to imagine, just in the way that it was very hard to imagine what would be built on Ethereum when Ethereum launched in 2015. So that's an area that we're really excited about. And I am excited also to back these DAO style projects that are, are sponsoring products and services that go beyond finance, right? So think, you know, I gave the example earlier of social media and Twitter. I do think that you can embed with the right tech platform and the right capabilities, you know, this ability to have um, an on-chain system or service that can serve up images, video, text, et cetera, and build things like social media applications in the long term. And so that's an area that I think will just be sort of emergent in 2021. I don't expect it to mature by any means, sort of the way that DeFi was, I think, in 2017, 2018. Um, that's when a lot of the early stuff was being built. Like that's when we invested in MakerDAO and, and Compound and some of the things that led to this DeFi explosion we see today. I want to tap into your like unique way at sourcing deals because it's something that I think you guys are kind of known for is the way in which you kind of really get behind the, the company that you, you invest in, right? Like there's this incubating element there's this sort of starting project working alongside them. How does that work for one? And then, and then secondly, um, how does that help you maybe elbow your way into certain big ticket deals? Yeah, I mean, we, we do a lot of inception, I would say. So it, it means we have an idea for a business that we would like to see, uh, but it doesn't yet exist. And we will find um, an entrepreneur that is interested to build in the crypto category, but isn't quite sure what to build. And we will basically match the idea or concept with that entrepreneur. Alternatively, an entrepreneur might have kind of a fuzzy idea of what they want to build, and we will help them sharpen that so that they know kind of exactly where the gap in the market might be and how the, the most compelling path to market. So, um, you know, we just like to be really, really early. You know, there's no phase that is too early for us. Um, we will work with a solo founder who just has um, whiteboarded out a high-level concept. What's like one good example that you sort of help um, bring to market in that way? Yeah, I, I think a project that that just went live that I'm I'm really excited about is called Derivadex. Oh yeah. Um, and we worked with this team at a super early phase and helped. I mean, they they really came up with everything, but we we talked through a lot of this stuff. And a lot of their technical design, a lot of their go-to-market approach to help them sort of refine their ideas. And, you know, I think they, they just launched on Ethereum mainnet. Very excited to see what kind of adoption that, that product gets, as I think it's a much-needed piece of infrastructure in the DeFi landscape. So that's an example of a project that sort of just went live that I'm very excited about. 
I, I guess this is one that kind of is newsy and also can you know relate to your your background as the first employee of Coinbase. I'm not expecting you to share any sort of unknown insights or or, or scoops, if you will, into the IPO, but just seeing the firm kind of grow from you know a very very nascent startup to this this face of the crypto world to the capital markets. Um, what do you what do you make of that? How does that sort of you know wrap your mind around that? Yeah, I mean, I think I told this to Brian and Fred when I interviewed at Coinbase, which is that Coinbase, if executed correctly, would be a one trillion dollar company, and you know I think they're well on their way to that. So you know, in general, I just I think that by virtue of being sort of the de facto bridge between the old world of fiat money and banking and the new world of crypto and DeFi, et cetera, they're in a very strong position. And, you know, it's been a wild journey to have been a part of and in the last several years be a participant of that um, sort of journey just as an investor, um, as Polychain has invested quite a bit into Coinbase after I left Coinbase. Mm -hmm. So what do you think will sort of like unfold what will the company now be able to do as a you know publicly traded company that maybe it couldn't have done private yeah i mean i just think it adds a huge amount of legitimacy to this whole area you know i i don't have access to any sort of private financials or anything like that but i think that uh, wall street analysts are going to be very impressed with coinbase's financials this is a real business this is not a pre-revenue social media company or something like that. This is a real hardcore financial services business with hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. And I think that, you know, even if you don't get Bitcoin, you don't get crypto assets, you don't understand. You get what a business is. You get what a business is. And you understand that that Coinbase is a very good one. It's a very big business and it has uh, grown very fast. And it has real lasting power, real moats and everything. So, you know, I just think it's a, a, um, you can't ignore it, right? If you're in the traditional financial sector, it's one thing that you you can't just brush off as, oh, that's all hot air, um, as many people have said about Bitcoin for a long time. Web 3.0 is something you're very passionate about. You've spoken about in the past. What opportunities do you see in the immediate term in 2021 and and how does Polychain position itself to sort of capitalize on those opportunities? Yeah, I mean, this world that I talked about of on-chain human and economic organizational structures, which sort of sponsor or accrue value from on-chain products and services, I mean, that's Web3 and it's happening right now. It's these DAO-like structures that are uh, building financial services today. And over time, it's going to be more and more complex DAO-like structures, which can, in a more and more sophisticated manner, manage capital, govern that capital, and govern underlying products and services that also will you know, become ever more complicated and sophisticated. So I do think that the Web3 is happening today. Uh, we just still don't have enough flexibility and scalability at the base protocol layer to get images and audio and um, video and things like that uh, to the end user. Although early attempts at those types of businesses are out there today. So I think that we have made a lot of progress towards Web3 since 
that phrase was first coined, it's going to be a little while until your average user is using Web3 applications seamlessly. But today, you know, we are well on our way to, to that happening. I want to close the show with um, maybe lessons learned, right? When we think about 2017, what are some of the things that Polychain learned that are now today informing the way you guys make decisions in this new market? Um, the main learning for me is constantly refine your thesis, but once you have a vision of the future, have virtually unlimited conviction in that vision of the future, because this area is very volatile and you can become both overconfident or fearful and you can lose track of, of what matters if you're not focused on the kind of actual core development here, not just on prices jumping up and down. So we've always been focused on that, but I think in running Polychain, you know, it's become ever more apparent to me that having a very strong idea of what's going to happen in the future and then having extremely high conviction and, and betting on that future is the number one way to generate, you know, financial returns in this area. And you cannot let market movements shake your conviction. In other words, do not have weak hands. Yeah, that's a simple way. <laughs> this market is not for the faint of heart. That was certainly one of the big lessons, even in 2020, right? In March. I mean, anyone who was paying attention to the charts then certainly would have learned that lesson for now. Olaf Carlson Wee, CEO and founder of Polychain. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We will definitely try to have you on again. Take it easy. Everyone, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for having me, Frank. Thanks, sir.